Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to episode 13 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Michelle Titolo. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Colin. This is really exciting. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Michelle is actually you're you're here in studio in Correct. my living room. Yeah, it's it's really nice living room. I love the Zelda motif. That's that's what the last person who was here said. <laughs> we had a whole discussion about it. So um, the, you're the second person who's been uh, here. Actually, uh, Bob, uh, do you know Bob Cantoni? I don't think I've met him. No. Yeah, he's also an iOS person, and he was on the third episode, I think, and he sat right there on the couch. Oh, cool. Yeah, so you got a better setup than he did. Yeah, this is definitely very professional feeling for all the listeners at home. There's like mic stands and, you know, headphones. It's all very, very fancy looking. It's pee fancy. (laughs) So what if, so um, maybe we could start just say uh, how people might be familiar with you. Sure. Uh, So most people probably know me from either my work on CocoaPods, which I did a couple years ago, um, spent a bunch of time working on the tool and a lot of the documentation around the tool, talking about it at conferences. Um, I also speak at conferences quite a bit. Uh, My next one is actually iOS DevCamp DC uh, in like three weeks, uh, August 4th, um, run by my old manager, Louie. Um, and then I blog sometimes. Uh, most of my blog posts tend to be technical posts on things like the Xcode project file format, or uh, most recently, I've been actually blogging about my foray into web development. Tell me about your foray into web development. I'm not much <laughs> of a web developer, so I want to hear about it. What's, what's that been like? Um, so I officially changed teams in March, so um, I'm actually doing backend development right now full time. And it's been uh, crazy and interesting. Um, it's for the first time in many years, I've been put back into a learning mode where, you know, I'm not the most experienced person in technology and I'm not the most, you know, senior person in technology. And there's a lot of things I still need to learn. So it's been really exciting and really refreshing. What have been the, uh, what, what's, what's the biggest challenge that you've had? Like, so I, I've done a little bit of web development, but it's mostly just like for my own stuff. Like I've done some like Python Django apps, um, but it's always just like I've never had to like do like a real thing for work that much. So like I imagine it's like a whole different set of things that are hard. So like what have been some of the like hard things that you've learned that are like way different? Yeah. So the biggest thing has been uh, the one of the biggest things, at least um, there's a lot of different things is the tooling. Um because obviously when you're building an iOS app, you're shipping a single application that's going to be used by one person on their phone. There's lots of one persons, but it's always like one person, one instance of that app. Mm-hmm. And you really care about optimizing it for that single use case. Uh, but with doing backend services, it's like, well, instead of one user using one instance of this, all of your users are getting that one instance. So there's a lot different Think, there are many different things you have to think about in terms of monitoring and um, fail saves, failovers, all mm-hmm. that sorts of stuff, as well as like I'm now getting into the realm of backend architecture, uh, which is not really that different from making iOS apps. And I'm doing a talk on that later this year. Um, but it's been really interesting to see how there are some things that I learned from doing iOS that translate really well and then some things that like don't translate well at all. So what's an example of something that doesn't translate? 
Um, so the singleton pattern is alive and well in web services because mm-hmm. like if you think about it, if you have a database and you know, all of the all of your API calls will be going to this one database. Um, you can obviously have multiple databases, but they'll still kind of need to be related to each other. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like if you have one item in your database that everyone needs to access, that's a hard problem. And it's sometimes, and depending on your situation, it can be really difficult to like prevent that from falling over. So um, you'll definitely see things like there being a single point of failure, like we have with singletons all the time, mm-hmm. where you're like, singletons are bad. You shouldn't have them. They're super stateful. Uh, you're going to have problems. Can't really get around that in the backend world a lot of the time because Hmm. there's one database that makes sense but you do have they do have other ways of working around it Mm -hmm. um and just for the for the aspiring web developers at home uh what uh what kind of technology are you are you learning this with I am using Node.js I'm using the ES6 stuff uh which I found really interesting after spending so much time in Swift Mm -hmm. I have let's Yay! Yay! <laughs> uh, the closure syntax is not that different, um, and I'm working on integrating Flow, which is a type checker for JavaScript, which basically makes a lot of the function signatures and block signatures of jo- or ES6 JavaScript look basically just like Swift. That's cool. Yeah, it's been really nice. Although the tooling is, you know, very different. Mm-hmm. Very different. Um, what text editor do you use? Just I'm curious. Adam. Cool. I've used, that's the, I'm using VS Code from Microsoft, which is like, I think they're like fork of it or something. Or it, It's built on the same underlying technology. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, I tried that a number of years ago, but I think they were still in beta. Mm-hmm. And I just, I didn't like it as much. I've heard some really nice things about it. So I've been thinking about giving it a try, but... I have all my like key commands Adam configured. I actually switched them so they matched my Xcode key commands mm-hmm. because I kept doing things like quick open and accidentally like doing I forget what dialog command shift O opens in Adam, but it is not quick it's open. Not quick open. So I I had to, you know, make my key commands right. Well that makes that makes sense to me. Yeah, and I, you can fully configure it, of course. I think I do that usually when I'm working in different text editors also. Um I'm terrible at JavaScript. I've done like this much and listeners at home will know I'm holding up my fingers to show a very small amount. Um, but I I guess the way I describe my experience with JavaScript is I think of it as being like a real programming language, except if all you had was dictionaries and dictionaries and closures. Yeah. ES6 has classes and inheritance. So it's more like a regular programming language. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I decided to use that version versus just using vanilla was because I love types. Mm-hmm. You know, I come from Objective-C, Swift have been my wheelhouse for so many years that I'm like, oh, like I'm going to get an error. Let me like, you know, check the type of the error to figure out how to handle it properly because different kinds of errors can happen. So I wanted to make sure I still had the ability to do that. Oh, that that is a very good thing to have. I also like types. Yeah. Although I liked in Objective-C how you kind of had the best of both worlds. Um, you know, because a lot of, you know, everything did boil down to ID, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's back up a little bit. Okay. How did you get into this? How'd you, how'd you get started in the, the iOS and Mac world? So uh, 
in college, second semester, senior year, I took an iPhone programming class. That was 2010. And that was it. Uh, so I, I'm not a computer science major. Um, I have a bachelor's in theater and a bachelor's in economics. I took a grand total of two programming classes in college, one of which was the iPhone programming class. And that was the first class that I had that ever dealt with a compiler. That was the first class I had that ever dealt with memory management, um, pointers. I didn't understand until I took that class, even though I tried working in object or PHP five, which had pseudo pointer stuff in it. I just didn't get it until I took that class. So you didn't have as much memory management and compiled languages in theater and economics? Definitely not. <laughs> but um, I was do- I've been doing programming as kind of like a hobby thing for many years. Um, mm-hmm. And up until that class, my wheelhouse was PHP, but not really in any like professional level. It was mostly just like little things that I hacked up on the side because I was bored. Yeah, that's sort of similar with me too, except uh, I didn't really go to college so much. Um, I took like one semester of music classes, uh, but I had, uh, I'd always done programming though, like as a hobby since I was a kid and then, uh, and then just kind of fell into it later, like, you know, yeah. later on. Yeah. It turns out when there's a recession, arts jobs are really hard to come by. So that makes sense. I, w- I was basically deciding, well, do I go to do a job in the arts, which I love and I still love, or do I want to live on my own and be financially independent basically right out of college? And I chose the latter. So here I am. And 2010 was still a pretty good time to want to get a job in the iPhone world. Oh, absolutely. There were, I was in Boston at the time and companies were desperate for talent. So even though I, I graduated college with like, you know, four months of Objective-C experience and I was able to get a contracting position at a consulting firm that... Um, I had a really good boss who mentored me and like helped me get up to speed on everything. And it was, it was really good. Yeah. I was lucky in that way too, except it was 2008, but yeah. Um, so you said you did theater and economics. Those are both really cool. Yeah. My question is, uh, cause here on the run loop, we asked the hard hitting, we do gotcha journalism. Okay. Uh, I just stole a joke from reply all that's totally (laughs) their joke. I'm just going to call it out now. Uh, anyway, which of those do you think has been more use? Which, which of those do you think was more useful in programming? Like theater for sure. So mm-hmm. I actually gave a talk on this at a uh, 360 iDev in 2015, um, called the, sh- I think it was called the show must go on. Um, I really, really liked that talk and I haven't been able to get it, give it since, but so one of the things that I took away most from the, all of the theater work that I did, um, was how to meet deadlines because, uh, you know, there's opening night. You, you can't change opening night. It's going to happen. Um, so it helped me, you know, learn how to work with a team um, because obviously like every show has a group of people that have different roles, different responsibilities, different levels of expertise. And so a successful show was about figuring out how all those pieces came together Um, and then also figuring out, okay, if it like, you know, shit hits the fan and, oh my gosh, it's like a week before opening and, you know, things are not as perfect as you had imagined. How can you get it to be the best possible thing in, you know, your short timeframe based on where you are now? Mm -hmm. So that skill has come back so many times in being willing to 
compromise to ship, but not like compromise in a bad way. Like, let's just hack it together. And I don't care if users crash, but like, you know, figuring out how to make the best of a bad situation. Uh, Not that I had very many of those, but something always goes wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that and the, the being working part of a team and roles and responsibilities, there's just, it was, it was invaluable. That makes sense. That's, uh, the quote I'd heard, I think, um, uh, Michael Jurowitz had said before is, uh, shipping software is about knowing which bugs to ship. Exactly. Um, which what you said reminded me of that. Yeah. It, it's very similar because software is never going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And so, so you, you, you got started in 2010 and then you were doing this contracting position and then what happened next? So I took a job as a web developer um, because in my days before iOS development, um, I said I was doing PHP. I've also been doing like HTML and CSS front end stuff for years. Um, I remember when CSS2 came out and I was so excited about it. And um, so I got a front end position, didn't really like it, went to a different consulting company and stayed there and, you know, moved out here, started getting hooked up with companies out here and you know here i am today so you were doing all uh, all web development at that point and then just kind of transitioned eventually basically yeah i had the i had it was like a three or four month contract initially right out of college and then the the web development job where i was very quickly not happy um and then i got my first real full-time ios job um which i started in like the beginning of 2011 mm-hmm. and it was yeah it was great so then I must have met you pretty soon after you moved out here, I think. Yeah, I think you did. Yeah. And you were doing the thing you the thing you were doing when I first met you is I think you had already been doing were involved in the CocoaPod stuff at that point. And you were also doing something called WWDC Girls. Yes. What what is slash was that? <laughs> it's still kind of a thing. Uh, this year was not quite as big as we'd hoped because of life situations. Um, it was basically just a event or became a series of events during WWDC for women to meet up because back in um, like my first dub dub as an actual like badged attendee was 2013. Um, and there was nothing if I wanted to like meet up with other women. So I saw uh, Jamie Newberry tweeting about like a lunch thing. So I, I helped set some stuff up and um, yeah, we've just been putting some time together for women to chill out, get to know each other and, you know, connect. And do you feel like the, um, so, I mean, part of that is because you said there were less, you know, there weren't that many women around, so you wanted an opportunity for people to meet each other and, you know, I guess network, just make friends, whatever, however you want to phrase that. Um, do you feel like the community has changed in a positive or negative way in the last four or five years or in any way? There's definitely more representation now, which has been really nice to see. Um, this past dub dub, I had a ticket and there were a lot more women around, which I thought was great. Um, I think it was in 2015, Apple opened up scholarships to people of underrepresented groups, um, which I think also has helped with those numbers as well, as well as just generally increasing the number of scholars. Um, they had something like 300 scholars this year. It was a lot. Wow. Yeah. There were a lot of scholars. Um, and for a lot of them, Apple's also been helping to pay. Um, mm-hmm. for like travel and stuff, which has been really great of them. So I think it's definitely getting better. Um, obviously, our industry has grown. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you compare now to like five years ago, the total number of developers is much higher, is much higher. So it's kind of like you're more likely to meet someone who looks like you mm-hmm. these days just because there's a larger pool of people. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm trying to I'm trying to not say that makes sense because it's my catchphrase on the show. <laughs> So now when I now when I say other things, uh, after I hear someone, you know, after someone finishes, I'll now get messages on Twitter complimenting me on all the on all the good variations of it that I use that weren't that exact phrase. Oh, okay. Let's try and think of some over the course of the show then. We're gonna work on this. Yeah. Um but anyway, that's all really good though. That uh I mean, I'm glad the community has grown. I feel like I mean, I'm like a white dude, so I'm not like but I feel like from my perspective, it seems like I know a lot more women and people who are not other white dudes who are in the industry now. But it also might just be that I've been around longer, so I've met more people. <laughs> that that also definitely helps. Yeah. So, um, so we were talking about WWC Girls. How did you get involved with, uh, how did you get involved with Cocoa Pods and what did you do there? That's And also that's Ruby, right? Yeah, that's all in Ruby. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now... Um, if I were to give you my resume, um, uh, the languages listed would be Objective-C, Swift, JavaScript, and Ruby. Um, and I'm actually doing an internal project at work that uses Ruby. So I'm still pretty much up to date on it. Um, although I still try and do my curly brackets. It's like the thing I hate most is Ruby doesn't use curly brackets. <laughs> so you forget a lot? I accidentally put them in all the time and then I get a syntax error. <laughs> I'm trying to think of which Objective-C... There's some Objective-C thing now that I'm forgetting that I still do like all the time in Swift. Oh, yeah. When I was working in a um, code base that had both languages, I would find myself um, like going from Swift to Objective-C. I would find myself trying to do like the Swift method call syntax. And then if I happened to be working in an Objective-C method uh, file and then going back into the Swift one, I'd start doing square braces everywhere. Mm-hmm. Context switching is sometimes hard, but... You get better at it over time. Well, that's why people like, that's one of the reasons people like Node so much, right? Because they can use the same language on the front end and the back end. Yeah. And the Swift on the server stuff that's coming, it's not quite there yet, in my opinion, just because as someone who's gone from client to back end, I now see the different needs and the different things that the back end services do differently than mobile. And so I think in the next probably year or two, we'll start seeing some of those things come out natively in Swift because mm-hmm. you can always bridge like that's that's actually a thing um, I'm doing it. One of my projects, I'm bridging between uh, Ruby and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. You can totally do it. It's not great. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll see some more native Swift stuff coming out that solves a lot of those back end problems. I agree. And we've digressed. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, we actually digressed in a good direction, though, because... Um, so, do you, you know Sarush Conley, right? Yeah. He did. He made that beacon. He was um, on the show uh, two episodes ago, and uh, he actually did all server-side Swift for the Beacon app. Yes, I did hear that. And then also, they uh, the most recent episode of his podcast was... Uh, all about server-side Swift. So I'll link that in the show notes so people can look it up. So going back to Cocoa Pots. Oh, yes, Cocoa Pots. Uh, What was that like to work on? What did you do? Yeah, so I first started getting involved when we were trying to do private pods for the first time. So like I was working at a consulting job that was my prolific interactive job. And uh, we were working with a company and 
we were trying to pull in some third-party libraries and we needed to create our own third-party library. I don't remember why, but we needed our own private one. And I found the documentation kind of lacking. So I was like, oh, hey, I can write this. Um, so I started doing that. Um, also, at about the same time, I started working on my project file talk, mm-hmm. um, which has been one of my most fun talks to give because people think that the the PBX proj file, that one that always gets merged conflicts and everyone complains about, um, I figured out how it worked. Um, I've never actually, like, most of the people who know how that worked either have been in the industry for a really long time or work at Apple on, mm-hmm. like, the parser for it. Um, so I was looking at, I was looking at documentation and I was looking at the Xcode Proj gem, which is a Ruby gem that parses the project file, um, started finding, fixing a couple bugs. Um, so most of the actual core work I did was around just fixing a bunch of bugs and helping out with testing and validation. Um, uh, but I, the biggest thing that I contributed to CocoaPods was I basically rewrote all of the guides. And we launched a new guide site. Um, it's since been, the UI has been redone, uh, but most of the content is still pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really nice because I have a liberal arts background, obviously, from the, the previous thing we were talking about. So I know how to write. And most at that time, um, Orta is obviously a native English speaker, but Aloy was not. So there were, there needed they had a little gap in their skill set. So I was able to help, you know, make things a little bit nicer and easier to read. And then I not only like wrote the documentation, but I rebuilt how the guide side works. And it's uh, mostly the same to this day using Jekyll, which is a Ruby gem for static sites. That's awesome. Uh, that's cool that um, I've always heard that getting involved with these open source things like writing documentation is like one of the best ways to get involved because like they all need it. Oh, absolutely. Um, If you follow me on GitHub, I don't do much open source work these days just because I'm, my brain gets tired. Um, But usually when I start using a project, I'll open a couple issues and like most of them will be around documentation. So my GitHub history now is mostly like points at which I started using different libraries. (laughs) Because you'll see like this like couple days of just like opening a ticket, making a pull request or two. Um, and then it kind of fizzles off as, you know, I, I learn it more and then I don't necessarily need to open as many issues, although obviously c- contributing back is a good thing to do. That is true. Contributing back is a good thing to do. I would say that this podcast is my biggest open source contribution currently um, in that, uh, well, it's been a good way for me to like... Um, it's nice to have a thing that I can do every week that like keeps me like in the community. So I think this is sort of like my brain gets tired. So I'd want to pick some too. So I wanted to pick something else I could do at home that would like sort of serve some of that same purpose. And I think it's doing that. Also, I just really like talking. Um, and also I like hearing other people talk. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Um, so I think we're basically caught up to, 2017 michelle at this point pretty much yeah yeah and you're current so you're currently working at capital one correct and you went to wwc yeah so the obvious question and also capital one what did they sponsor there i remember there was james dempsey concert yes and that was awesome yeah it's always awesome yes there were a lot of capital one people there yes how big is the team on the main app we're at about i think 40 or 50 engineers I've worked for like one company ever, 
where the entire company was bigger than 40 people. Yeah, Capital One's, I think, at like 45,000 people now. Wow. And that's just on the the flagship app that I used to work on. Um, There are teams elsewhere in the world who are working on all of the different Capital One digital products. We have a bunch of different apps for iOS for both consumers as well as um, like if you go into a cafe or a branch, um, the software that people are running there on iPads is also uh, built by the same teams. That's amazing. That's so many people. Yeah. Big, yeah. Big, lots of features, big app. Uh, I learned a lot from working on that. Um, it was the first time that I had really worked in a large code base. So because, you know, my consulting days and then I was at a startup for a little while and it was always build the first version of the app, build the first version of the app, build the first version of the app. And so I got really good at starting projects and then you'd ship version one, um, maybe version like 1.1 or 1.2 and then like it would get handed off. Uh So this was a really good experience for me to see kind of how a code base organically grows over time, um, how you can kind of tend your garden uh, Uh in some instances. And then you see like the part of the code base that no one's really tended for a while. So it's like overgrown and has weeds and you need to, you know, occasionally go in and like garden your code base. Uh, so it was a huge learning experience for me. And um, the project that I was working on was the universalization. Um, Capital One used to have an iPhone and an iPad app. They were separate code bases. And in March, we shipped a unified code base that had the UI that flexes across all the different screen sizes. And that was really fun. That sounds like a lot of work. It was a, yeah. <laughs> that does sound fun, though. Yeah. And I'm, I'm currently working on a blog post series at work that'll go into a lot more of the gritty details. I, um, I'm really happy with the way they've, uh, I feel like with the iPad, the first couple of years, like making universal apps for it was like kind of gross. And I feel like with the size class stuff, it's like so much easier. It is. But as I was, I was, I've been talking to other people about this project and about the process we went through. And, um, one of the decisions we made early on was to um, work with our design team to, to fully flex things. Like, you know, uh, we weren't going to like set essentially breakpoints where like, if the screen is this wide, you do this. If the screen is this wide, you do that. Um, like between size classes. Um, we did that in a couple uh-huh. rare cases. Um, but for the most part, it was like, no, no, no we're going to design this. So there's like mins and maxes and everything flexes and that designers were okay with there being extra space because, I've definitely worked with designers in the past who are like, no, 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 this has to be pixel perfect. But And then, you know, something like what was announced at uh, this year's WWDC with iOS 11 with the new multitasking scenarios. Uh-huh. And apparently there are many apps that were actually doing that. They were like hard coding. Like if you are 320 wide, if you are four, I forgot what the next one is, like 468 or something. Sounds about right. And then if you were like 594, which is half and half on a iPad Pro, the 12.1 inch. I, yes, I know these numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and they would like hard code their UIs to be at that sp- those specific points. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you introduce any other points or like the 10.1 inch iPad that is just slightly larger, things were kind of weird. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to make an unpopular statement. <laughs> Okay. I'm going to say that coding a bunch of magic numbers into your code for each specific size that you think your app might be is not the correct way to do it. Nope. And I'm not going to lie, doing fully flexing, doing all of the rotation, like we had some weird bugs where like if you rotated it, 
like if you rotated the device three times while it was multitasking, like things would crash. Um, but, you know, as it should. Yes, of course, because who rotates their device three times in a row? No, uh, we had some go for a walk. We had some really, really amazing QEs um, who found all of these really crazy bugs. Um, and so, yeah, we we made the decision. It was probably a little bit of a harder road. But, you know, um, my coworkers were talking on uh, launch day of the developer betas for iOS 11. And they were like, yeah, we're pretty set. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a really good feeling. Yeah. Um, you were talking about working with designers to make everything, you know, flexible between all the different sizes. Um, and I have also experienced in the past where there are times when you're working with designers where that is a challenge because they really do like they a lot of designers, especially maybe ones who aren't as used to working in mobile or whatever, really design for like one size. And then like you show them it on any other phone and they're like, it's all messed up. And it's, uh, I don't know what kind of check, like, I think it really changes the way you need to like think about it when like anything can change, you know, in that way, the way you need to think about like the layout of your app, like, oh yeah. Yeah. Like what are some of the like best practices that you guys found that made it easier? Like what kind of designs worked or don't work, do you think? So one of the best things that the design team that I worked with did was they spent some time learning auto layout. Um, so there was like a, they took some uh, open source courseware from uh, CodePath. There's like a iOS for designers specifically, uh, there's specific curriculum for that that CodePath has and um, the design team went through it. And it was great because then they actually had a better understanding of what we mean when we're like, but how does this like flex? Like, what are the relationships? And I think the thing for them and the thing that helped everyone understand each other more um, is that auto layout is about defining relationships. Mm-hmm. It's not about defining a size. Um, and I think once the designer started thinking and, okay, what is the relationship to this line of text and this image versus how much space is between this line of text and this image they were able to understand things a lot better and we were able to have much better conversations and much mm-hmm. more productive conversations about how things worked in different scenarios. That is a really good tip is that if you can get your designers to think in the terms that auto layout thinks, instead of thinking in terms of like more static sorts of layouts, mm-hmm. you will be able to communicate better with them. Yeah. And it was also finding like patterns. So obviously on an iPad pro and landscape, like the really big, the 12.1s or 12.9s, I forget. 12 point something. Yeah. Yeah. The really big ones, um, having your content be all the way across, probably not going to work for most apps. So we were also working on what are our own, um, like readable width. Essentially we, we did that on a bunch of screens where we created our own quote unquote readable width where, you know, we'd let things get to a certain width and then we'd be like, no more than that. We'll take some white space mm-hmm. just because, you know, it was easier and it looked better. Well, mm-hmm. actually it wasn't easier. And, and many times it actually caused problems because auto layout's not necessarily great at doing that on its own. So you have to like uh, set a constraint. So like in regular, you have a constraint active that's like a max width on something. And, you know, sometimes you'd forget to uncheck the checkbox so that it would also show up in compact and you'd have this weird constraint thing and it would complain. Um, constraints are, you know, kind of a pain sometimes, but 
they're really great. And once you have that shared language and you have your patterns, mm-hmm. um, we did a lot of like repatterning of the app to make things that were not previously consistent consistent. Like making sure the margins were the same, making sure um, all of our modals got redone. There's now three styles of modals. Like if you look at the the Capital One app on iPad mm-hmm. or even on iPhone, you only see three kinds of modals because we redid all of them. That's that's great. And it you know it helps everyone out because users are then used to the same pattern over and over again, and our code is now the same. Mm-hmm. So like all modals get presented the same way. Well, it's good that you had a team that could like work together well to be able to like you know, do both of those things in concert and still like get it chipped and, you know, take those opportunities to do what you said. Yeah. And um, one of the nicest things is that we were actually constantly shipping. So mm-hmm. uh, all of the internal builds of the app were uh, quote unquote universal with the build setting checked. Um, and so we were incrementally shipping these updates to customers when the app was just running on iPhone for like the entire dedicated team was around for nine months. And then we'd previously done some other work that was also starting it. So it was probably about a year's worth of work before customers actually saw it, even though we were actually shipping updates in every release. That reminds me a little bit of the um, the Apple thing where like they actually tested the APFS conversion like three times or whatever. I guess it's a slightly smaller scale than that. But <laughs> Well, yeah, because, you know, we turned off iPad. So. Yeah. So unless someone somehow messed up our builds, I guess. Yeah. Because like you can't you can't change it like in an info p list after the app. No, after that's the true. App's built, so it's not exactly the same. Yeah. Um. But uh. So WWC, what else were you? What were you most excited about? I so I, I went to WWDC after I changed teams, but I had gotten the ticket before I changed teams, um, which was really interesting because it was my first time going to that without necessarily like directly applying like all of the nice shiny new ui stuff to like oh how am i going to get this to work mm-hmm. um i really liked the uh privacy talk um which was talking about um like the biggest thing that as a, a consumer that i love is i can now select always uh for location services i can now always say um only use my location when I'm in your app. Like you're not allowed to just always have my location anymore. Cause I, I'm one of those people where if an app requests my location always, that means you don't get my location and I will deal with it. And if your app doesn't work, I'll delete it. Cause I'm very sensitive about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also been some really nice changes around the APIs for that stuff. I'm glad they're finally fixing the Safari issue where, uh, Safari view controller used to share cookies, um, and some offline storage with normal Safari. So like if you're in like the tweet bot or something and you're reading an article um, that and you're wearing in a private browser, normal Safari would be able to track you. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, so they fixed that. Um, and then I'm also excited for some of the new security updates. Mm-hmm. Um, this, If you haven't seen the security talk, it was really good. And I do recommend it. And Colin can put that link in the show notes. I will. Probably, if I don't forget. Um, I'm pretty good at the show notes thing. I usually remember. <laughs> um, so uh, there was one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and it was speaking. Yeah. How'd you get started speaking? And like, because I feel like you came from like the like um, theater background. So probably being on stage is like fairly natural for you. 
I was a technical theater person. Oh, no. Yeah. So I, I had to take one acting class. I mean, class. not oh, no. That's cool. <laughs> I had to take one acting class to graduate. Um, directing. I took a year of directing, um, which was probably more useful for presenting than acting because directing is all about placement and tempo and things like when to move, um, how knowing how an audience will react when you're moving to what you're saying versus when you stop. Mm-hmm. Um, cause if you ever really, really want to make a point and this is just kind of a pro tip. Um, if you're like doing like a build up to a point, you start walking and then you stop and you make your point and people will remember it. Um, cause if people stop, you pay attention to them after they've been walking. that's true yeah it's like there's some little tricks like that um i started speaking mostly because i wanted to um i also am not ashamed to admit that i wanted to travel a lot and Mm -hmm. conferences are a way to help pay for that when you don't have the money to yourself Mm -hmm. um but i also i like conferences i like meeting people i like learning new things so um it was kind of all those things and i put in i mean the first talk i did was a lightning talk started out small and then uh my first conference was 360i dev min in las vegas in like 2013 i think Mm -hmm. um and then i just started getting connected to other conference organizers and meeting people so kind of snowballed from there Mm -hmm. side question are you going to 360i dev this year i will not oh that's too bad yeah because i'm using shameless self-promotion uh, we're going to be, do- I'm going to be doing a live episode of the run loop at WWC. You I mean, not at WWC, at 360 iDev. You should go to iDev. It's fun. I should go to, okay. You should send me the link for that thing that you just said, and then I'll go to it. Okay. okay. I said iDev. iDev. Yeah. 360 yeah. iDev. Oh, you're saying for other people <laughs> who are listening. Yes. I thought you were talking about another conference, which was just called iDev. No. That you're telling me I should go to. And I'm like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> no, that would be... That would be not a great name for a conference. It would be kind of confusing. I thought that when you were saying it. I'm like, <laughs> but okay. Um, so, Michelle, it's, uh, do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to say? Really? I had to stop asking people this because that's what they say every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you'd prepared me ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And that this would like, be a thing I'd ask That you. this would be a thing and I could come up with like some amazing wisdom to drop. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, nothing is coming to my head, off the top of my head. Mm. Well, that's okay. Because as I said, I need to stop asking people this question because you're like <laughs> the fourth one. And I think, I think Noah on the last episode's response was, um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and then I thought, I shouldn't ask Michelle that. And then I did anyway. <laughs> um, I, I guess if there's one thing and... Um, I've been telling a lot of people this because I've been getting a lot of questions from iOS people of like, why did you leave? Um, and I'd probably say the, like, I love learning and, mm-hmm. um, if you're not learning, you're not growing. Mm-hmm. So learn more yeah, and figure your path, figure out how you can learn more. That's a good tip. I agree. And, um, also, I don't think you ever leave being an iOS developer. It's like being a it's like being a marine. Like there's no ex marines. I mean, I did say I, I changed all my key commands in my editor I use for JavaScript to match Xcode. So I think I, I'm never going away. I think you're still an iOS developer at heart. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, <laughs> Michelle, how can people find you? 
Uh, so I am Michelle Totolo on Twitter, um, Michelle with one L. Um, and I also have a blog up at michelle.io. That's great. And if you'd like to follow uh, me, I'm at Colin Donnell. If you'd like to follow the show, it's at The Run Loop. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash Colin Donnell. The other thing I'm going to say about that is I'm going to try and start adding more benefits there because I've been told that people like it when you give them things on Patreon and not just take their money for no reason. And so I'm going to try and add some more stuff. So if you're listening and you have any ideas for the sorts of stuffs you'd like to add, have there, uh, you know, send it to me on Twitter and that'd be great. Michelle, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Colin.